this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Exodus, chapter 19, verses 2 through 9. It's the basis for the sermon here at First Free Methodist Church on June 18, 2023. It's the fourth message in our series called Renew, about building a spirit-centered life. Let's hear the text from Exodus 19, beginning at verse 2. I'll be reading from the 2020 revision of the New American Standard Bible. Beginning at verse 2. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord God called to him from the mountain, saying, This is what you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So in verse 7, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also trust in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. This passage of scripture takes place before uh, the Ten Commandments happen and before the giving of the law to Israel. It's a, it's a meeting together at Mount Sinai as the events of the Exodus story continue to unfold. In verses 2 and 3, the uh, first two verses that I read a moment ago, we, we hear a little bit more about the arrival at Sinai and the call that God has put upon Moses. According to the text in verse 1, which we didn't read, it was three months to the day since the Israelites were led out of Egypt by Moses. So the great stories we know of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, their liberation from Egypt, all happened three months prior. They arrived at the same location where Moses had encountered God at the burning bush. So God spoke to Moses at a burning bush. Moses then left Jethro's house. He went to Egypt, helped liberate the Israelites. They came across the Red Sea into the wilderness, back to the mountain, to the very same place Moses had seen that burning bush. This is the mountain where God and the people will meet, just as Moses met God at this mountain. And the remainder of the events in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers will all take place here at this encampment at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, verse 3 follows a very careful structure and syntax, and it has to do with the syllables or the number of syllables used in the verse. So the verse again reads in English, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord God called to him from the mountain, saying, Here is what you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. 
it follows a very stru careful structure. And just uh, uh, to get into the details a little bit so you can appreciate the differences of how something is written in, in this case in Hebrew, and then it has to be translated into English that there's something that's lost. So it follows a pattern of 10 syllables, 10 syllables, two syllables, seven syllables, and seven syllables. So 10, 10, two, seven, seven. In the first line, it said Moses went up to God. That has 10 syllables in it in Hebrew. And then it says in the next line, and God, or in this case, the Lord, Yahweh, spoke aloud to him from the mountain. There's again, 10 syllables. Then in the middle of this passage of scripture in verse three, the key word here is saying. He went up to the mountain. The Lord God called him from the mountain saying. So then the pivot verse is what God is going to say. That's the two syllable hinge connecting the two halves of the verse. So the verse opens with a 10 syllable statement, another 10 syllable statement. Then the word saying in Hebrew has two syllables. Then it says, this you will say to the family of Jacob, that's seven Hebrew syllables. And then finally, you will tell the Israelites, that's seven Hebrew syllables as well. I only lift that up, not so much that it has any particular significant meaning for us, but just simply to say that the way these stories are often written and the way they're conveyed has an artistic form to them. There's this literary um, uh, craftsmanship to how these narratives are offered to us that sometimes we lose when we translate the text out of the language it was written in into the language, of course, that we read and speak today. This is a good example of that. God gives Moses the instructions on what to tell the Israelites. Now, you might remember from the stories earlier in the book of Genesis that the, 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 one of the, the sons of Isaac named Jacob his name was changed to Israel. So all of Jacob's descendants or Israel's descendants are those 12 tribes of Israel. That's who's here. So in some sense, he's not referring to as Israelites as a nation group, but really in many ways, the way the text needs to be heard, at least at this point, is that this is a family group. These are the descendants after centuries of the house of Jacob or also named Israel. Moses goes up, God speaks, then Moses tells the Israelites. That's the pattern. And that pattern happens again at the end of this passage of scripture. Moses goes up the mountain, God speaks, Moses goes and tells the Israelites. So in this story, there's a way in which we need to read about the dynamic of Moses going up the mountain, down the mountain, back up the mountain, down the mountain. He'll later go back up the mountain again. It follows this pretty key uh, way in which the dialogue between Moses and God happens on the mountain itself. That opens up a key passageway for us to pay attention to, and that's this. God's methods change, but the message is the same. You know, God spoke to Moses in a burning bush near Sinai, and now Moses returns, having done exactly what God asked him to do. God told him at the burning bush, I want you to go to Egypt and liberate my people from their slavery and captivity. Moses goes and does that. He brings the people literally back to the exact same place where God had given those instructions. But now the way Moses is going to be spoken to differs. There's a, a sense in which Moses did, of course, what was asked, but now he's faced with delivering a message. 
And the message is from God to the Israelites. God is moving. God is dynamic. God's contextual. Notice God doesn't appear in another burning bush at this episode. God appears in a different way. And even by the time we get to the end of the text, we're going to find that God appears yet in another way. This, uh, this smoke on the mountain, if you will, is how God is going to appear. So whether it's a burning bush, whether how it is here, whether it's in smoke or tablets, the medium of God speaking is different, but the message is the same. And we must never forget that in our own lives, that the ways in which God might speak to us in moments of prayer or through a friend or by reading scripture in a variety of different ways, just maybe even taking a walk and experiencing the natural world around us, God speaks through different methods, but the message is always the same to us. Now we turn to verses 4 to 6 of this passage, which really help us frame the covenant that God is desiring to enter into with the Israelites. In verse 4, it talks about how God elaborates on what he did to the Egyptians. And then he's going to invite the Israelites to make their commitment to this covenant as well. So this covenant will have two forms to it. There's a covenant here, this one, as if in advance. And then there's going to be another covenant, or actually the continuation of this very same covenant in Exodus chapter 24, once the law has been given to Moses. So there's the prelude to the covenant here, and then there's the postlude to the covenant that takes place in chapter 24. So you could look at it this way. In this story in Exodus 19, the question that God is asking the Israelites is, are you willing? And the second question God is going to ask in chapter 24 is, are you sure? There's a sense in which God is inviting the Israelites into this conversation as a as a form of obedience or cooperation with God with what God is doing. God does the work. The question for the Israelites is, are you willing and are you sure? Now, covenant is not a contract. It's, it's something grounded more in the fidelity of relationships than it is a, a contractual agreement. We do contracts all the time, maybe when we buy or lease an apartment or uh, purchase a house or buy a car or do something else. We engage in contracts all the time, but oftentimes that contract is not built necessarily on a relationship. Covenants are about relationships, about the engagement in community. They're kind of a deeper expression of something that's much more significant than a simple contract. Now, there's different kinds of covenant. There's in the Bible, there's two different kinds, and they're kind of theological words I'll just kind of drop here for you. One is monopleric, and the other is diplerick. Monopleric is a covenant in which only one party has something to perform. One person. One party does something. Then there's a diplerick covenant. and a diplerick covenant, each party is required to do something. And this is a diplerick covenant. In other words, God says, I'm going to do this. And then the Israelites need to make their commitment that they're going to do what they promised to do. So the covenant outlines the conditions and the stipulations between God and Israel in advance. They haven't received the law yet, but they're being asked to engage in this covenantal commitment before the law is received. And what God says is, what I've done is, didn't you see what I did to the Egyptians? How I carried you out on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself here at Sinai. So God is reiterating what's already been done for the sake of the Israelites. 
What's important to take note of here in this passage of scripture that you don't want to lose, that when God says in verse four to Moses, and brought you to myself, that's the first time in scripture that God is referred to in the singular. So this is an, an emergence of an, kind of a unique theological tradition. Up to this point, God has never been spoken of as a singular, always been part of a, a company or a host or a group. Here, God is referred to strictly as a singular, that, that they were brought, brought you to myself. Important thing to note. And then it goes on to say what they will need to do. It's in verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. Then God continues to promise what God would do. So what God is saying is that look at what I did. Look what I did to the Egyptians. I carried you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. He then says what they need to do, which is to obey his voice and keep his covenant. And then God says, if you do that, then you will be my own possession. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This language here is so unusual. It's so fascinating and in many ways exciting to me that God doesn't call them um, uh, just a nation group or a state. God says, you're my own possession. There's a belongingness to God. They're a, a group that's chosen for a purpose. And notice what they are. It doesn't say you'll be a kingdom of warriors or a kingdom of conquerors. It says you're going to be a kingdom of priests. That, that the Israelites are, are not here to lead and conquer, but in every way they're here to serve in the same way a priest would. And then God goes on to say that they're to be a holy nation, not just like any other nation. doesn't say you're going to be a great nation. It says you're going to be a holy nation, that they're to be peculiar, to be holy, to be set apart. God has done remarkable things up to this point, delivered them from the Egyptians, carried them out on eagles' wings, brought them to himself. God says, I will do in the future all of these other things. I will make you my own possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That opens the key passageway for us here, that God is the one who is at work in us and through us. The covenant out here, as it's outlined, contains some very heavy lifting on God's part. But on the people's part, the Israelites' part, what they need to do is obey God's voice and keep the covenant. The covenant points backwards to what God has done. It points forward to these three promises we've talked about, being a possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. What God requires of them is their agreement and their obedience. In other words, the work of the Israelites is cooperation. God has done the heavy lifting, and God will keep doing the heavy lifting, but that heavy lifting means that God requires their agreement and obedience. And sometimes we as followers of Jesus think that the work of discipleship is strictly ours. No, it's not. The work of discipleship is God's. What God asks of us is the same thing that God has asked of the Israelites. Nothing more than cooperation. And finally, we turn to verses 7 to 9, and this is where the people make their initial commitment to God, the, the prelude to the covenant itself. 
Verse 7 outlines how and what Moses did. It tells us in verse 7 that after he received this message from the Lord on the mountain, he comes down and he communicates all of this to his elders. Notice Moses doesn't try to speak to all the people directly, but he chooses to work through a network of people. God speaks to the elders. The elders then speak to their respective communities. He gave them exact, Moses gave them exactly what God had said. Nothing more, nothing less. And so once it's communicated to all of the people, the people said that all the Lord has spoken, we will do. In some sense, they're writing a blank check here. They haven't received the law yet. They don't know what God is going to ask them to obey. They don't know what it means to cooperate yet. They haven't heard any of that. They say before they even know that, that all the Lord has spoken, we will do. Their faith in God at this point in time, 90 days after their liberation from Egypt, runs so deep that they trust the specifics to God. They promise to obey and keep a covenant that they haven't even seen yet. So Moses returns to the mountain and tells God what the people said. Now notice what's happening with Moses. Moses is kind of shifting roles and gears here. Moses is no longer really the liberator only of the Israelites. He's now become the mediator of the Israelites. He's the one through whom God speaks and the people speak in their relationship together. God promises then, if they are willing to obey, a cloud when he speaks so that the people will know that Moses is actually meeting God up on that mountain. Notice how the passage ends in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud for two reasons, so that the people, number one, may hear when I speak with you, and number two, may also trust in you forever. It's so interesting that God is saying that people, I want people to hear what I'm saying, but I also want them to trust your leadership, Moses. God, even in the the Sinai episode, God is empowering Moses's leadership and supporting it. It opens a key passageway for us. God acts with power in response to our faithfulness. You know, once the people give voice to their agreement with God at Sinai, God responds with power. It is power for them and power for Moses. So often in our lives today, we would like to see the power of God manifest first, and then we'll make our commitments. And this is not usually the case. God invites, we cooperate, God then moves. God invites, we cooperate, and God then moves. So our focus really must be less on our demand of God and really much more on God's demand for us. If you have comments, reflections, I'd love to hear from you. Please visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on news in the upper right-hand corner and then click on podcast on the menu that drops down. And then you can click on this week's episode and leave your comment. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. That's it for this week. I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.